This is healing lesson one, and we call this lesson the nature of sickness and an assessment of healing. And so we want to look at sickness first and foremost and just really break down what is sickness. But before I go further, I want to just add this just to help you understand your role as a Christian. A couple years ago, we had a wonderful couple leave our church, and one of the things they, one of their excuses was that you don't, they said, Pastor, we love you, but you don't teach enough on faith and healing. And to which, you know, I just acknowledge just that, you know, because you, you don't want to rebuke dumb on its way out. You just want to bless them and chalk that up and say, all right, well, I'll see what I, where my fault is. But you have to understand this. As a pastor, I can't teach every subject every week. That doesn't make for balanced Christians. But at some point as a Christian, you have to grow up and learn how to feed yourself. You know, right now with uh, our youngest daughter, she's still nursing. We have to wake her up. And, well, I don't. Mama does. Mama does everything in that regard for, for the youngest. Uh, Lydia, on the other hand, she feeds herself, but we still have to go and get her the food and then set it in front of her, cook it, prep it. And then sometimes she says, all right, you help me now. So then we, you know, scoop up the hard-to-get stuff and feed her. At some point, though, I fully expect both my daughters will be able to not only come home and decide they're hungry, not just go to the pantry, but fix me a meal. Amen. Nothing wrong with that. You know, I don't mind fixing, but you can see that's when you grow up, you don't have to be spoon-fed anymore or bottle-fed. You come home and you say, you know what, let me prepare something. So there's something grossly immature about a believer when they say you don't teach enough on faith and healing. Well, if you need more teaching on faith and healing, make yourself available to the Bible. Or, and I didn't tell this couple this, but I said, I've got the curriculum, pull them off the pod school. Or you know what, I did tell them this, well, I do teach on that probably twice a year in Sunday school if you'd come. So I really don't feel bad for people who are lazy. Now, I don't say that to be mean, but just to, just to challenge us as Christians, at some point you grow up and you feed yourself. I didn't ask this couple, do you believe I'm spirit-led? Because they would have said, oh, absolutely. Well, then I haven't felt led to teach on faith and healing any more than I have. <laughs> but I did feel led to write a whole curriculum on it, on both faith and healing, and record it, and make the curriculum available and the MP3s available. Now, you make yourself available and don't just sit there and expect to be spoon-fed. All right, so here we are teaching on healing because a couple weeks ago when we laid hands on sick folk, I thought, I need to teach on this again. So we felt led to do it. So that's what we're doing this morning. This is lesson one. That was just my (sighs) getting something off my chest as a pastor. The nature of sickness and an assessment of healing. Our first point, sickness is an assault on God's design. We need to understand this. I wrote this lesson because there's so much ignorance out there in Christians thinking that sickness at some point might be the will of God. But what, what is sickness in even just the natural eyes? Sickness is something, means, it means something's not working. It means something needs to be fixed. It means something's not normal. What is normal? Normal is defined by how God made it. God didn't make Adam and Eve dysfunctional. God made Adam and Eve normal. He didn't make them with the cold. He didn't make them with syphilis. He didn't make them with AIDS. He didn't make them with the birth defect. I'm pretty sure Cain and Abel didn't come out with Down syndrome. Amen. This is all sickness and disease. So sickness can be viewed as an attack on our biological bodies or what some folks I like to call your earth suit. It's it's an attack 
on your biological body. Sickness affects biology. In the beginning, there was no sickness. In fact, you have to get 20-something chapters into Genesis before you find the first sickness. With King Abimelech. And he was sick and near unto death, and so was his wife and his maidservants. That's how, that's 20-something chapters into Genesis before you find the first evidence of sickness. Sickness, excuse me, in the beginning there was no sickness. Sickness came as a result of sin. I think we understand, had Adam and Eve never sinned, there would have never been sickness. But sin entered in, the curse entered in, and things began to decay and die. Our bodies have a design, and they are designed to run smoothly. This is God's will. If you ever study anything about medicine and the medical body, you know how amazing and fearfully and wonderfully we made. Uh, every time, uh, you know, just in raising daughters and my wife researching all the stuff that goes on while the babies are developing in the womb, it's just absolutely infinitely complex. And at one, at one point, you know, this hormone kicks in and it produces this. And, and once you have the baby, breastfeeding reduce, uh, produces this hormone and releases this that allows the bones to relax. And it's just so infinitely complex. And we always mockingly say, isn't evolution wonderful? Like trial and error over four billion years could produce that. Of this they are willfully ignorant. <laughs> that there is a God and he said, let it be, and it was instantly perfect. We understand this. I mean, it's, it's just an amazing thing called human body and health. Psalm 139, 14, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. God doesn't say we're, we're dysfunctional. Uh, your, your spare tire is liable to blow out. Uh, it doesn't say we're fearfully and sickfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. We understand that when God made man in the beginning, he was made to be flawless. From the way your back works, to the way your joints work, to the way your, your biceps move your arms and your, your thigh muscles move your thighs and how you can run. And at the same time, you're perspiring. At the same time, you're processing water and blood. At the same time, you're breathing in oxygen and it's oxygenating your blood. At the same time, you're, you've got to use the restroom. At the same time, you're hungry for more. It's an amazing absolutely complex design that, that you cannot improve upon. And for all of our technology, we've yet to even match it with robots. It just, it is truthfully is amazing. And so that is the design. That is the standard, the baseline of perfection. So sickness is anything that dips below it. If anything starts to wobble shake, ache, hurt, not properly released, not properly dry up, not properly secrete, not properly function, that is a dysfunction. And that's what we call sickness. Sickness attacks and hinders our ability to function in the earth. Adam and Eve were not made to know sickness. You know, God's not some kind of bully. It's not like, uh, like my little girl, she'll build a tower just to knock it down. <laughs> or, you know, we build snowmen just to tackle them. Or uh, uh, growing up in, uh, in, in Tennessee in the early 80s, my next door neighbors would build battleships to put them in the creek. Turkey Creek ran in our neighborhood. They'd build battleships just to shoot BB guns and bottle rockets at them. <laughs> That's fun redneck stuff. God didn't make man just to thump him. God didn't make man just to say, let me see all the infinite ways I can pervert what I have made. That doesn't make sense. 
No. But the fact, Proverbs says, a wise woman builds her house, but a foolish woman plucketh it down. So does God build man, then foolishly pluck him down? No. We know better than that. doesn't even make sense. Sickness is a result of sin. Sickness is an act of sabotage against God's blueprint. Our bodies have a blueprint. Doctors spend all their life and multiple lifetimes studying the blueprint. And uh, it, may, it may cheapen the doctor's education, but to me, a, a doctor and a mechanic are the same thing. Mechanics work on the design of cars and doctors work on the design of bodies. And though we might be impressed with a brain surgeon or a heart surgeon, they just do the same thing every day. Cut, peel, crack, open, massage, replace, cut, pig's heart, sew it back up, here we go. You'll be good in six to eight weeks. How do you know I've done this a thousand times? It's, it's a blueprint, it's a design. We're an organic machine. And all sickness is, is sabotage against that blueprint. Even the world recognizes bodily blueprint flaws as birth defects, defective, dysfunctional, a birth defect. They were not born according to blueprint. They were born defective. And that may, probably before long, the PC crowd will eliminate that term because it's going to make somebody feel you know, less than normal or less than happy or less than positive. But that's what the world calls it, a birth defect. It came out defective. Just like if it comes out the assembly line, if it doesn't pass muster, it is a defect and it gets sent back to be melted down, smelted down, or just destroyed. We understand this. This is sickness. It's, a, it's an assault on God's plan. Uh, again, this lesson we're looking at, we're just assessing sickness. Uh, we're assessing the nature of sickness. So uh, if we look at sickness this way, we think, well, man, this is not good. A lot of religion has taught us that sometimes sickness is good. It'll teach you something. Nowhere in the Bible does it say sickness will teach you anything. I always like to mention when I had viral meningitis about seven or eight, I guess eight years ago now, 2006, eight years ago. And uh, so I had the paralysis and I had the viral meningitis and I was on a bunch of drugs and then it got into my heart. So then I had myocarditis and then the doctor said, if you don't rest, you could have a, a cardiac, go into cardiac arrest and die. So I said, all right, I, should, I think I should rest. So then I had uh, somebody come to me after I was fully recovered or recovering and they came to me with uh, bated breath and they said, so what, what has God taught you through all this? What have you learned? And so I, I knew what they were fishing for. So I said, well, I learned that viral meningitis is the inflammation of the meningi, which is the cellular level, around, the cellular layer around your brain. And so this virus got through the blood-brain barrier at the base of my cortex there. And the virus, they're not sure which one, but the Mayo Clinic did a lot of tests. They're not sure which virus, but it really didn't matter. But it inflamed the meningi of my brain. And that caused these neurological symptoms like seizures and paralysis and slurred speech. And I learned that there are three types of psychotropic drugs from the 70s, and they all mess you up. But this new stuff called lamentia, it's much better, but boy, it trips you coming off of it. But then I learned that the virus can get into your heart. And if your heart's inflamed, if you go to use the bathroom, it feels like you sprinted hundred miles an hour and that can kill you. That's about all I've learned. Um, but what'd you learn about the Bible? Nothing. I couldn't even read it for six weeks, but I did watch a lot of movies. So I can, want me to run through those movies, I can tell you what's good and what's not. See, the ignorance is God's going to put sickness on you to teach you something. Well, then why do we have a Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit's called our teacher. He will lead you, guide you, show you things to come. He will instruct you. He will put you in remembrance of everything I've said to you. So if I have a Holy Spirit and a Bible and a preacher who's called a teacher, 
why do I need sickness? But the misnomer is that sickness teaches you something. Somebody believed that because they were sick and for the first time in their life, they opened their Bible. And for the first time in their life, they cried out to God. For the first time in their life, they went to church. For the first time in their life, they opened a Bible study and they began to learn. And so they got so much out of it, they foolishly came to the conclusion that sickness taught me something. No, the Bible taught you something. No, the preacher taught you something. No, the power of the Holy Spirit taught you something. It was just sickness that uh, was the impetus, the motivator to actually cry out to God. And as one man foolishly said, he said, sometimes God will put you, foolishly he said this, God will put you on your back to make you look up, to which I replied, why'd you quit looking up? If you never stop looking up, you don't ever have to lay down on your back. And so this thing is just ignorant, so we have to teach this to dry up stupid. So our next section is sickness. The Bible calls it demonic oppression. If the Bible calls it demonic oppression, why are we calling it God's gift? That would seem like an insult to God. The Bible calls healing people doing good. That's Acts 10.38. It also calls sickness demonic oppression. The Bible never calls sickness good, nor does it ever call sickness a godly blessing. Look at Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, this is Peter preaching. He said, that gospel which came unto you, you know it. What was the gospel? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all. Notice he went about doing good, doing good, doing good. What does doing good include? Healing all that were oppressed of God. No. All those that were being taught something by the Holy Spirit. No. Healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Very simple. That verse right there should be the basis for all doctrine concerning sickness, disease, and healing. Healing, good. Sickness is demonic oppression. The Bible is how we define things. We don't define things based on what happened to grandma. We don't base doctrine based on what happened to us when we were in the world. We build doctrine on scripture, and this passage right here gives us very clear, healing is good. Sickness is bad. This is as simple as see, spot, run. Run, spot, run. All right, let's try this again. Healing is good. Sickness is bad. If sickness is good, we should shut hospitals down. If healing isn't the will of, will of God, never go to a hospital. To me, this is so simple. And yet folks that don't want to believe in divine healing, they'll be the first to call 911 or the first to schedule an appointment with their doctor. Or they, usually they're the most hypochondriatic. Those that don't believe in divine health, they're the ones that everything's a sickness and I got to go to the hospital. I got to go to the hospital. I really think they like the attention. The problem with being healthy is you don't ever get attention. The problem with being healthy is you don't have anybody waiting on you. The problem with being healthy is then God would expect you to do something for him. As long as you're sick, God can't really expect you to do much for him because you're sick. Maybe that's why this doctrine has infiltrated the church, so the church isn't ever able to do anything for God, but we're too busy waiting on each other hand and foot. Just an observation. Jesus did good and healed the sick because God was with him. If sickness was the will of God, 
then Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would have been actively opposing the will of God everywhere he went. We've all heard the ignorant statement, I think God put this on me to teach me something. Well, if that's true today, it would have been true in the days of Jesus. And if God had put sickness on those people in those days to teach them something, then here comes the Son of God, the Word of God, the will of God, the Word made flesh. He's opposing the will of God in everybody's life. And yet he said, I only do what I see my Father do, which is what? Heal people. So even the living example, the living testimony of Jesus Christ lets us know sickness could never be the will of God, ever, ever. So in that regard, we don't have to receive it. We don't have to accept it. It doesn't keep it from trying to rest on us. It doesn't mean we don't battle symptoms. It just means they don't have a right and we can inform them. You can put up a no trespassing sign. That doesn't mean some hooligan isn't going to disregard it. But it lets you know, because I've posted it, I now have a right to shoot you if I need to. It is posted. Therefore, you are not just trespassing, you are criminally trespassing. I am authorized. When you know this, you'll realize you have authority to run off the criminal called sickness and disease. And so you have to see oftentimes symptoms as criminal trespassing on God's property. The trespassing in the temple of God. The viruses, the bacterial infections, the broken bones. However it comes, whether it's demonic oppression or just an accident or just a flu virus. It doesn't have to stick around. We don't care what the result or the cause of it is. We just like the end result of healing. The Bible records that some sicknesses are the direct result of demon power. And I wanna, I wanna just say this briefly. Not every sickness is a demon. So we don't wanna be super spooky. Not every sickness is a, a spirit of infirmity. Some sickness is just a bacterial thing. Uh, you know, if you get a splinter, and it gets infected and pusses up, that's not, little, not a little demon of pus. That's actually your fearfully, wonderfully made body going into action. And the white blood cells breaking down something it doesn't like, and as it dissolves it, it makes pus. And it takes over and does its thing. It's actually healing in action. But now if it gets out of control, you can get gangrene. Uh, just because you have the runny nose and it's allergy season doesn't mean you have a demon. But now the Bible does fully record that sometimes sickness and disease is demonic. So let's look at here. Uh, Satan, not God, was the one who smote Job with sickness and boils. It was Satan. It was not God. It was Satan. Uh, the problem with a lot of folks like to quote Job, I'm, I'm going through a Job-like experience. Well, you have authority that Job didn't have. You have authority over sickness and disease. You have 66 books of the Bible Job had no knowledge of. You have the name of Jesus that Job never knew. You have the blood of Jesus that Job, Job had no comprehension of. And even then, Job, the theologians tell us his ordeal was only about 18 months. So if it's a Job-like experience, just hold your breath and 18 months will come and go and it'll just relieve itself. So in the end, you should be relieved. But it was Satan, not God, that smote Job. King Saul was troubled mentally by an evil spirit. Now, this thing is, is eating up our nation. They're telling us 25% of America has a mental disease, a mental disorder. One in four Americans, that includes children. Children is one in five, so 20%. And this thing, they're calling it an epidemic. We taught on it a few months ago, had several months of teaching on it. But it shows no signs of stopping. It shows absolutely no signs of stopping. Uh, Mr. Luke was sharing with me this week about talking with a patient or a client, I guess you should call it a client, um, 
and he was talking, just explaining the Bible to him. And this guy, of course, uh, you know, he's on medication for a mental disorder. And, and so Luke was just telling him, well, you know, sometimes it's just the enemy and you got to resist it. And the guy started asking questions. And so Luke starts telling about casting demons out of this, this witch down in Panama and how it happened. And, and the guy, he said, the guy began to tremble and began to rock. And he said, uh, Luke, something inside of me does not like you talking about this. We may want to change subjects. Okay. All right, we'll deal with this another day. The world's solution is medication. But I think we both know what that right there was. But the guy's hungry for God. They had about an hour conversation about the scriptures and how things work. King Saul was troubled mentally by an evil spirit. He was not hindered physically, but he was troubled and tormented by a demon spirit. When David played a harp, the evil spirit left and Saul was refreshed and was well. Good praise and worship will help blow stuff off of you. That's why we aim so hard to have good worship around here. A dumb mute was able to speak once Jesus cast a devil out of him. Not all dumb muteness is a demon, but in this case it was. A blind and mute man was able to see and speak after Jesus cast a devil out of him. Not all blind people have a demon, but this one did. Uh, we know sometimes their eyes were put out and Jesus would heal them. One man, the Lord, made eyes out of mud. Apparently he was born without eyes. That's not a demon. That's just a birth defect. And we know many times they, they would ask the Lord, was he born in sin? Did he commit a sin that he was born this way? Sometimes you're just born some way. Other times he would heal folks and say, no, go and sin no more lest a worse thing happen to you. As an evidence that sin had brought this thing into their life. So sometimes a demon must be cast out for healing, but not every time. But we do want to see that in these cases, sickness was a demonic uh, operation. And that's kind of insulting to say God and the devil do the same thing. I think it's insulting. And it, it doesn't, it's, it's contrary to the nature of our God. A lunatic boy was healed and made sane after Jesus cast a devil out of him. That's how the Lord dealt with mental disease. He cast demons out of them. We still have loony bins, lunatic asylum. Now we call them something much more politically correct. You can't call them the loony bin or the romper room or the nut house. You have to call them, you know, Happy Valley correctional home for the mentally stressed. Oh, the nut house. Or they have whatever pleasant terms uh, to address it. <laughs> the Bible describes a woman who was bowed over for 18 years as having a spirit of infirmity. Can you imagine that? She, she, we would just say, you know, she had arthritis really bad or a hunchback. But the Bible is very clear here. She was oppressed of Satan. This was a demon causing this woman to bow over. We have a lot of folks like this in our, cult, or in our, our region. And every time I see them, I'm reminded of this. And sometimes my heart wonders, is that a demon? I wonder if that's a demon or if that's just osteoporosis or, or whatever, you know, we would say medically. But here, this woman... She had a demon. He said, whom Satan has bound. He didn't say some demon, some little low thing. He said, Satan has bound low these 18 years. Jesus laid his hands on her and she was made whole. So not everybody bowed over, not everybody with arthritis or osteoporosis or a hunchback has a demon, but this one was, and, and Jesus was very clear. Satan had bound her. 18 years. That's a long time to be bound by Satan. Yet she functioned in society. Yet she loved the Lord. You know, she didn't foam and gurgle at the mouth when he cast her out. This, this spirit of infirmity is what had done this thing to her. 
So here's another, here's a third biblical assessment of sickness. The first assessment was that uh, it's an assault on God's design. The second assessment is that sickness is a demonic oppression. The third assessment is that oftentimes sickness is judgment. The Bible refers to it many times as judgment. Never have we seen it called good. Never have we seen it called a learning experience. Never have we seen it called a teacher, nor have we ever seen it called a blessing or a promotion. We've seen it called an assault on God's design. We've seen it called demonic oppression. And here we're going to see that sickness is sometimes judgment. Ouch. That's uh, that's sobering. Sickness has often been a form of judgment, though not all sickness is judgment. And again, we want to keep balance. Just like not all sickness is a demon, not all sickness is a judgment. Just because, uh, you know, your baby's born with the sniffles or maybe a hearing, hearing problem or maybe polydactylism, multiple digits. I saw a picture from the World Cup. A whole family, I thought it was Photoshop, but a whole family, there's like 15 or 20 of them giving high fives. Every one of them had six fingers on each hand. That whole family for generations has polydactylism, multiple digits. And I just thought, huh, why isn't the NBA recruiting those folks? Man, they can palm a ball. They're, you know, Brazilian, they're little, you can throw them. <laughs> no sin, just, just something going on in their biology. And it obviously wasn't hindering them. It's just kind of weird to look at. We know we had giants in the earth that had six digits. Maybe it's left over from that, who knows? It's biblical to have six digits. Doesn't mean it's proper, but it is in the Bible, which would make it biblical. Sickness has often been the form of judgment, though not all sickness is judgment. King Abimelech and his household were struck sick for sinning against Abraham. That's your first sickness in the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 20. And it was judgment. Abimelech had taken Sarah into his wife to make her into his home to make her part of his harem. And the Lord visited him in a dream and said, you are a dead man. What? This man lied to me. Abimelech apparently knew God well enough to argue with God. And he said, Lord, you knew in the innocency of my heart have I done this. And the Lord says, I know, which is why you're not dead yet. But ask Abraham to pray for you and I will heal your family. And that's what happened. It was judgment. Now we could debate how does that happen? Does the Lord just remove his hand and sickness fills the void? Just like he did with Job, he told Satan, look, behold, everything Job has is in your hand because it's not in mine, but I will not permit you to kill him. I will not permit you to touch this. And then, then Satan did his thing on Job then comes back and says, yeah, but you didn't let me touch Job. He said, fine. Have you not seen he's in your hand? You can touch him now, but you cannot kill him. God never did it, but the Lord stepped back and allowed it to happen. Sickness and disease were part of the 10 plagues brought upon sinful Egypt for their stubbornness. Lice, you notice lice is a curse? It's a plague, it's a judgmental plague. Now, just because you get lice doesn't mean you've got sin, so just curse it. You know, you just sleep in the wrong bed overseas, you come home with lice. You just wear somebody's headband, you come home with lice. I don't have problem with lice, I just shave my head and it's all right. (laughs) Boils, ooh. Just because you have a boil doesn't mean God's judging you. You may just have an ingrown hair. Blaine's. Just because you were born and you named the kid Blaine doesn't mean God is judging you. (laughs) And death. This is all judgment. Death comes to everybody, though. That doesn't mean we're being judged. When you serve God, death is a promotion. 
when you're heaven bound, death is the ultimate promotion. So we, but we see in this instance, all these things were a judgment upon is, uh, Egypt because of their stubbornness. Miriam was struck with leprosy for speaking against Moses. She was made sick because she slandered her leader. Judgment. The Philistines were cursed with boils and plagues for mishandling the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in all, with the technicality, or technically speaking, they were struck with STDs because the boils were on their private parts. Now, that doesn't mean they, they slept around to get them. They just woke up with them because they had stolen the Ark of the Covenant and had set, dared to set the anointing in the same house as Dagon. And this thing sweeps through the whole Philistine camp. They have boils or emeralds on their pudundum, which is a fancy old English term for crotch. <laughs> a curse, judgment because of their sinfulness. Jeroboam's hand withered for acting against the prophet of God. It doesn't mean it turned like to prune. It just shriveled up, became useless. Paul cursed a sorcerer with blindness for hindering the gospel. The sexual deviant in the Corinthian church, the one fornicating with his stepmom, was delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That was a church's action. Basically, so you can kind of see how this sickness works, the church was commanded to deliver him. Can you imagine a service where, take our church, because it's like the, not like the Corinthian church, but we are like, we're a church. We get a letter from God that says, um, Brother Smith here, he, um, he refuses to repent, and therefore, church, we've been commanded to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Therefore, we're to have no fellowship with him, so we're going to ceremonially say, Brother Smith, we deliver you to Satan. Satan, we want you to know we deliver him into your hand. Have your way with him. Destroy him. So his spirit, because the verse goes on to say in verse 5, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Uh, now get out of our church. New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Eight chapters before the love chapter. So he walks out of here no longer covered by the church's protection, no longer covered by our prayers, no longer covered by our authority. Satan can now rush in and destroy his flesh. Car accident, house fire, sickness and disease, shotgun blast because he's sleeping with his stepmom. He's going to go home and dad's going to shoot him. Either way, Satan gets to take his life. Now the good news is, so we know the rest of the story. Second Corinthians comes along and Paul addresses it and says, he has been penitent. He's been eaten up with overmuch sw uh, sor sorrow. Please receive him. He's done me no wrong. He's repented for this. Don't let him die out there consumed with guilt and sorrow. It did its job. But do you notice that when you just wink at sin, it never delivers anybody. That may seem like a harsh case, but it saved that man's life and his salvation. Because the Bible is very clear. Let him die now that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What does spirit being saved refer to? Eternal salvation. The day of the Lord Jesus? Come on. The Bible never teaches that sickness and disease will teach you anything about God. Under the old covenant, pastors were described as teachers. In the New Testament, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, not sickness and disease, John 14, 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. You see, it's the Holy Spirit. In fact, I could probably quote First John. It says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you need not that any man teach you for the anointing shall teach you all things. 
Now, it doesn't diminish teachers, it doesn't diminish the scriptures, but you've got three things given right off the bat in the New Testament that teach us. The preachers, the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit. But nowhere in the Bible does it ever say sickness and disease was given or permitted that you might learn something, ever. The closest you might get, if you want to doctrinally argue, is 2 Corinthians 12. And Paul said, lest I be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations given unto me. Remember, he went to heaven twice. That might puff you up a little bit. If it didn't humble you, realizing I'm not dead. I'm not dead. Why am I here? Now you're making me go to planet Earth? And then you're calling me back? You know, I can see maybe the pride, but I would also hope for some humility that going to heaven and seeing unspeakable things, he, Paul said, which are unlawful for me to repeat, I would think that would humble you as well. Paul said, because of all these revelations, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh. But then he clarifies what it is, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. The messenger of Satan, the, the Greek is angel, the angel of Satan to buffet me. Thorn in the flesh isn't a sickness, not even under the Old Testament. Numbers 33, 55 talks about being pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides if you don't deal with these reprobate people. It's referring to somebody or perhaps a demon sent to buffet, to buffet, to buffet, to keep them humble. But if you keep yourself humble, why do you need something else to humble you? Just an argument. Healing as an act of mercy. Theologians will point out that under the Old Testament, God worked more miracles, and under the New Testament, he worked more healings. And if you study it, you know it to be the case. There was healings under the Old Testament, and there was miracles under the New Testament, but the abundance of the New Testament is healing. The abundance of the Old Testament is the miraculous. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel in the lion's den, making the axe head float, uh, healing the water, the crews that never ran out of oil, and the jar that never ran out of uh, uh, wheat or, or grain flower. These are miracles and only a handful of healings. But many have pointed out that the New Testament, Jesus Christ healed so many more people than he ever did miracles for because healing is a, a demonstration of mercy. In fact, even the word Bethesda means house of mercy, which we know in John chapter five is actually a hospital. The pool of Bethesda is the house of mercy. And now you have Bethesda Medical School. Everything's Bethesda. It's a house of mercy. Nurses and doctors are called ministers of mercy. Uh, missionaries, medical missionaries go overseas and they have mercy on people. Healing demonstrates God's great mercy and compassion toward mankind. Mercy is defined in the Greek as kindness or goodwill towards the miserable. Well, if you're sick, that's you. Even if it's just sinuses, you're miserable. And the afflicted joined with a desire to help them. Mercy without a desire to help them is not mercy. It's just sympathy. I'm just, I'm sympathetic towards your cause, but I ain't going to help you. But mercy in the Greek means you don't just feel bad for them. You want to do something to help them. And you will. Here's some examples of healing as an act of mercy. Psalm 6-2, David cried out, Have mercy upon me, O Lord for I am weak. O oh Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. Notice he's crying out for mercy and he's expecting healing. He's crying out for mercy, but what he's really wanting is healing. Have mercy upon me. Heal me. Psalm 30, verse 2. O oh Lord, my God, I cried unto thee and thou hast healed me. Crying out for mercy. Have mercy on me. When you make a big mess in your life, you should just stop and cry out for mercy. When you, you get what you ask for. When you don't know what else to ask for, just ask for mercy. Quit digging a hole. Quit trying to figure it out. Just say mercy. 
have mercy. You know, as kids, we used to play, we called it mercy. You know, you wrap fingers and you try to break each other's hands, wrists, elbows, or whatever cracked first. And how did you give in? What did you cry? Mercy. That basically said, you win. Please, please, please have mercy on me. (laughs) Matthew 14, 14. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. Notice the compassion and the mercy is what motivated them, him, to heal them. Not even the Holy Spirit. His heart was moved with mercy towards them and that's what caused him to heal them. The great healing evangelists of the last hundred years, they, w- they would talk about in their writings being moved more by compassion and mercy than by the Holy Spirit. John Lake was one of the prominent ones I'm thinking of. He would stop and pray for people just because his heart would break when he'd see them. And they often said, if we could get a heart of compassion and mercy for the sick or the lost like the Lord had, we'd see a lot more miracles or healings. John Lake told the story of being in a church service as a visitor. And during the greeting time, he said this darling little girl turned around to greet him. And he said she was as cross-eyed as anything you've ever seen. And his heart instantly broke that this beautiful little girl would grow up being this cross-eyed. So he just said, darling, let me lay hands on you and pray for you. Because he was determined that she would not be cross-eyed by the time she left. It wasn't even his service. She just turned around in the pew and he just had mercy on her. It broke his heart that this little girl would grow up looking that, like that. And he prayed for her a couple times and when she turned back around, her eyes were straight. No gift of the Spirit. No being led by the Spirit. Just compassion. And that seems to pull God more than anything. Jesus was moved on compassion to cleanse a leper. Mark chapter 1. The 10 lepers requested mercy from Jesus and found it. The mercy of Jesus healed them of their leprosy. A blind man cried out for mercy. Jesus asked him what he wanted. Jesus didn't know what he wanted. Maybe the mercy was to heal his kid. Maybe the mercy was to restore his marriage. Maybe the mercy was to get him out of the debtor's prison. Obviously, the guy's blind, but Jesus doesn't know what he wants. But notice crying out for mercy with a true heart almost seems to have given him free liberty to ask for anything he wanted. What is it I would, you would have me do for you? Is it your child? Is it your daughter? Because some folks came to Jesus, have mercy on me. What's wrong? My child is grievously vexed of a devil. My child is this. My wife is that. Come, my daughter is near unto death. Sometimes that's what they wanted. Jesus didn't know here. He said, what do you want? That I might receive my sight. Jesus said, receive thy sight. Thy faith hath saved thee. Notice that you have to have faith in mercy. That if you cry out for mercy, God will give it to you. Uh, John chapter 5, 1 through 9, Jesus healed an impotent man at the pool Bethesda. That's the house of mercy. There was a great multitude of sick folk who abided at this pool waiting for healing. God sent an angel at a certain season into the pool to trouble the waters for healing. This had been going on for years for a great multitude had assembled there. There was apparently, it's like Old Faithful. The, the, the guys are out in Yellowstone. You know, Old Faithful doesn't mean, you know, exactly when it's going to happen, but it's about every 45 to 50 minutes. They didn't know exactly when this angel was going to come, but he had been doing it on such a regular basis. It was a famous hot spot for healing. The supernatural activity of this place had been famed abroad. This was God having mercy on the sick by providing an avenue for divine healing before the coming of Christ. Now, we don't know why he didn't do it all the time. We don't know why it was only good for one person being healed. We don't know, but we just know God was pouring out mercy here. That's why the Jews called it the house of mercy. And here was this one man looking for help. 
God is a merciful God, and his mercy is demonstrated in his desire and willingness to heal broken people. He called himself the Lord that healeth thee. He has never revealed himself to be the Lord God that maketh thee sick. Never. Never has he been revealed to, that's never been one of his names. And so in conclusion with this lesson, obviously we here, we believe in healing. Hopefully we believe more strongly in it. I wrote this lesson for folks who still believe the old religious demonic doctrine that, well, God heals sometimes. Well, God can heal, doesn't mean he wants to heal. And hopefully with this lesson, we assault that ignorance from every biblical perspective. And so we walk away realizing God doesn't want me sick ever. Now, it doesn't mean I'm not going to get sick. It doesn't mean he wants me sick. And so when you know that he doesn't want you sick, you actually push back. God doesn't want me dumb. God doesn't want me poor. God doesn't want me carnal. God doesn't want me pornographic. God doesn't want me obese. It doesn't mean you won't end up there, but at least you know the will of God. And that gives you confidence to fight for what he wants. I, I like to point this out. Just because God wants something doesn't mean he's going to get it. And just because he's not going to get it doesn't mean it changes what he wants. God wants what he wants, what he wants. He wants every man to be saved. Doesn't mean he's ever going to get that. It doesn't change what he wants. And he wants every one of us healed. Doesn't mean he's ever going to get it. But it doesn't change what he wants. But those that want it can get it. But just because the Lord isn't going to get it doesn't mean he changes what he wants. And so we know that God wants us healed. So having done all to stand when you have symptoms attack you, keep standing and fight this thing. Because if you don't fight it, it will only get worse. That is a promise. But if you will fight it, you can get the victory over, over whatever it may be. Amen? Father, I thank you for this lesson. Bless these folks. Let a great faith for healing develop in our hearts. May we fight and resist sickness and stand against this junk in the evil day. Father, we thank you that you've made an avenue through the body of Jesus Christ, broken beyond every means and beyond the recognition of a man, that by the stripes of Jesus, we would be healed. We thank you for healing our bodies, keeping us healthy and strong, no matter what the symptom may be. Lord, we thank you, and we receive it in Jesus' name. Amen.